Well, good morning, and let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 7. If you're with us in person this morning and want to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage we're going to be in on page 812. Always encourage our people each week to have a Bible open, whether on a device or in front of you, and follow along with us. And this morning, we're just going to be covering three verses. As we continue down this home stretch of our series, going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And these are three verses um, since I began to preach about eight years ago that I've always known in the back of my head, eventually I'm going to preach on these. But I never have. And while we at Grace think that all scripture is God-breathed, all, uh, every single verse in your Bible is profitable for teaching, uh, there are certain passages, certain verses that tend to stand you up straight, that contain a level of intensity that makes them stand out. And this morning, it's one of those passages that I long for us, have been praying for us all week as a church that we would have the eyes to see this morning, the ears to hear. And with all that is happening in the world, maybe all that's happening in your lives, our minds, I'm sure, are in a million different places, I encourage us to dial in this morning because God has a word for us. So, Matthew 7, let me read verses 21 to 23. Jesus talking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At Grace Church, you hear often that we exist to glorify God by making disciples who know Jesus Christ and make him known. But that question, do you know Jesus, is not the only thing to ask, for we also need to ask, does Jesus know you? What does it mean to be truly known by Jesus? What are the ways that we can be fooled into thinking that we are known by him, but in actuality are not? What happens if we're not? I'm not one to try and stir up drama for the sake of drama, but I don't think there's a more important set of questions to address than these. And I realize if you're like me, this is a passage maybe you've heard before, but don't really like thinking about. And these are questions that tend to bring a sense of dread in you. Uh, maybe you immediately begin to think, well, am, am I good enough? Am I acceptable enough? Where you can begin to view Jesus in a kind of this cold place of, of judgment. It's transactional. I got to get in. What do I got to do to get in? He's trying to keep me out. So before we dive in, I... Here's what we need to understand. The Jesus saying the things that we just read and will unpack is the same Jesus who says to all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. 
to all who are weak and feel weak and desire strength, to all who are sick and need a Savior, come. Come to me. This passage that we'll see, it's not a cold warning shot across the bow, but when rightfully understood, my prayer is that it leads us to rest in the one who saves and, and, and the one who is the foundation of not only our worship, but our entire church, our entire faith community, where we as a church cannot just talk about, but be about the reality that we are free to bring our weariness here, free to be open about it. We are welcome to find rest in the only one who can provide it. And this rest, this blessed assurance that we sang this morning is that which actually fuels us and, and doesn't drain us for assurance of your future in Christ fuels your faithfulness for Christ in the present. It's vital. And so as we get back into the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we again, since January, verse by verse, have been Going through this sermon, we saw that Jesus provides the kind of character of the people who are in the kingdom of heaven. He gives them a mission for the people in the kingdom of heaven. And then he unpacks over a long period of time the kind of lives that those in the kingdom of heaven tend to live. And then he nears the end and he gives the application point. And the application point was given two weeks ago. The, the so what of the sermon, if you will. And he said, so enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. Not the wide gate that leads to destruction. And to flesh that out, he warns against the kind of false appearances in others, primarily false teachers that we saw last week. Be, beware of, 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 of the, the bad fruit that is out there and their teaching and their behavior. And now he's going to take a step further and tell everybody who's listening, uh, don't just evaluate others, but look within. Are you known by God? Jesus here, the entire sermon is not talking about final judgment, but this passage is. When he says in verse 22, on that day, on that day, he's speaking of the day when all people, believers and unbelievers alike, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, upon which all people will either enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of darkness. And so the way we're going to look at this text is kind of see how it gives us two dangers and then one exhortation. Okay, so there's two dangers and then one exhortation. The first danger, number one, is the danger of non-belief. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this is a weightier proclamation than we may originally even think because the entirety of the sermon has to do with the kingdom of heaven. Again, the character, then the mission, and the lives of those who are within it. It's this kingdom that Jesus has already inaugurated in his birth and his first coming, but has not yet consummated, which will happen at his second coming. And it's a kingdom that not everyone will enter into. Jesus is not a universalist, if you will. He does not say, hey, listen, all people will ultimately be saved, whether in this world or in the next world. And, and the increasingly common and kind of modern notion that all religions and all belief systems basically are the same at their core. They just look a little different or have a little different paths or various paths, but ultimately we're going to the same God. We're all going to end up in the same place. It's not what Jesus taught. E eternal life 
and the kingdom of heaven is an exclusive reality, not an inclusive one. And and there's a vital difference between saying that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be saved as spoken about in the book of Revelation. There's a difference between that and then saying that all people in every nation, tribe, and tongue will be saved. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and just all people will be saved. It's now been uh, 10 years since a man named Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins. You may know Rob Bell's name. If you're particularly in my generation, you might even have more insight to him than, than others because Rob Bell was a well-known pastor of a megachurch in Michigan. He was extremely popular when I was in high school and college in my young adult days. And I think there's various reasons for that. One, he was just a very compelling communicator. His church was growing by leaps and bounds. And it also coincided those kind of mid to late 2000s with the rise of DVD video series and technology and social media and a social media presence. And so he kind of was the guy that many of us who were believers kind of looked to. And again, one of the reasons, he was very gifted. If you've read any of Rob Bell's book, like I read his books faster than some of the, any other books I've ever read. He's just a gifted writer, gifted speaker. And it made it all the more difficult to kind of nail down his beliefs at times because he kind of spoke and written in kind of an artistic, circular fashion. And, and there were s- certain signs of concerns before this book, Love Wins. Like he would say things like, who cares if Mary was really a virgin? Like, does that really matter? Is, is your whole belief system going to rise and fall on the fact that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ? And you're kind of thinking about this, and you're like, oh, maybe not, I don't know. Does that matter? But then this book, Love Wins, essentially says, if God is so loving, hell can't exist in the way Christianity has taught about hell. It's one of those books where he never makes kind of clear statements. He just says things in a certain way and then kind of asks certain questions and pokes certain holes, and then you get to the end of it. And ultimately, he's saying, um, uh, ultimately, did God really say blank? And you get to the end, and you're like, I think he just said everybody goes to heaven, but but he didn't actually say it. And so then, obviously, there's all the interviews and the, uh, you know, video podcast, and Bell's asked about it, and he's like, no, no, I'm not a universalist, but, but eternal life is essentially just what you choose now. Hell is just life without God, and you can choose that now, and we're always going to have that choice. But ultimately, hell is temporary. Every person will end up in heaven because God is love and love wins. But the reality is that in Jesus' words himself, that there is a God who created all things, including humans made in his image. And if you being made in his image includes the reality that you have a soul that will live on forever. And verse 21, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who do enter, according to Jesus, will be those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so again, if you're reading this and you're just asking questions and you're thinking about this, you're like, wait a minute, did Jesus just advocate for uh, a works-based righteousness? If you just do enough good things, then you get into heaven? Is, Is it our works that will determine our eternal life? The answer is no. And we'll come back to that. That Jesus is not contradicting the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. But for now, I just want to point out this. Again, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so hang with me here because we're about to see the fact that Jesus is primarily concerned with those who think they're in heaven or in the kingdom of heaven and they're not. Because many of those who he says will call them Lord, Lord, will not be saved. But he's not saying that saying Lord, Lord is wrong. In fact, that is right. That's the whole danger that, again, we will get to. That calling him Lord is required for salvation, but just only calling him that is not enough. And yet the implication is, for those who deny Jesus is Lord, those who deny that he is the Messiah sent by the Father, those who deny he's the Savior of the world, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, those, again, who will deny that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Anyone who does not claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is not saved. And we need to start there and affirm that it's not unloving to believe that. It's not unloving to say that. In fact, I I would go as far as to say it would be unloving to your neighbor to not affirm that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And to not warn about the danger of unbelief is the most unloving thing you can do to your neighbor. Is there a way to do that? Absolutely. That's not necessarily what the sermon's about. But on its face, the danger of non-belief is the primary danger here. Now we go to number two. The danger of self-deception. I think this is the main point of Jesus' Words here, he's not speaking necessarily primarily to non-believers, but those who claim and profess to be followers of God, those who claim to be religious. And I think this danger of self-deception is the most haunting aspect of this passage. That not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, and many, that's the haunting word for me, many, Right there in verse 22, on that day, many who think they will, won't. Not some. Jesus doesn't say a few. Occasional occurrence where someone might be self-deceived, but he says, many. And in these few verses, I see at least four ways Jesus says people can be deceived into thinking they are part of the kingdom of God and not be So we're going to walk through those four. Number one, those with correct claims about God. Again, that title Lord in this context is a divine title, that people who say Lord are rightly claiming Jesus is divine, that he is God, that he will be the judge over all things. Again, salvation cannot be had without correctly claiming that Jesus is Lord. But there's a problem. Correct claims about God are essential for salvation, but they are not sufficient for salvation. They are essential, but not sufficient. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes in verses 9 and 10, quote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So so what's happening here then? What's Jesus talking about? 
I think he's saying that there are those who confess with their mouth, make the right claims about God, but their hearts are far from me. There's an intellectual assent, there's correct claims of belief, and it can be a form of self-deception where somebody knows about Jesus, because they've always known about Jesus, they've always known about what he has done, they even know what about, about how you're supposed to be saved, and then get deceived into thinking that that's the same thing as believing in him with all their heart. This is what James is talking about in his letter when he sarcastically says in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James makes the point that no one knows more about Jesus than the devil himself. The demons, they are a doctrinally sound bunch. They affirm who Jesus is. They know what Jesus has done. They have the quote-unquote right answers, but they hate him. Far from him. So intellectual assent, correct claims about God, they are essential, but not enough. Thinking about this, thinking about my own context, my life, I know many of you, I I just want to say especially a word to those who grow up in church. You've grown up in church maybe your entire life. Those who have children who are raising up in church, and by God's grace, we hope they'll be in church their entire life. This is probably the greatest danger of self-deception. That you know about Jesus. Your children are to know about Jesus. They're going to know the right answers to the, to the right questions. And praise God for that. Praise God for the grace upon your life of putting you in a context that had a church that preached the gospel, had a family that preached the gospel, that you grew up in that context. But don't be deceived into the reality that knowing about Jesus equates to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. On that day that Jesus talks about, there's no um, multiple choice exam that's going to be handed out. There's no theological exam on judgment day. Knowing information without inner transformation is not salvation. Knowing information without inner transformation is not salvation. It's the first way to be deceived. The second way, number two of the danger of self-deception, is fervency for God. A fervency for God. So John Stott writes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is not only referring to those who rightly claim Lord, but even those who fervently do so. That repetition of Lord, Lord. That's a label that conveys enthusiasm and zeal, a, a passion and a fervency. In thinking about this, um, you know, when, when I'm home, and alone in a room, which never happens. And one of my children yelled from the other room, Dad. That could be anything. You know, what? Oh, nothing. Or, I'm bored. Or, oh, I didn't know you were in there. But if I hear even one repeat, Dad, Dad, I know something just happened. They're excited, they want to show me something that they made. They are scared and want to show me a spider. 
they made a blanket for it, and one of their twin siblings just fell on their head, right? Like something I know, just one repeat, I know to expect something different here. Dad, dad. Something fervent. That repetition indicates enthusiasm. Lord, Lord. Shows a correct claim, but not only that, for it's also a passionate, emotionally charged right claim at that. And a passion for God, a fervency for God, often accompanies salvation. Jonathan Edwards calls it the religious affection. But again, passion alone is not sufficient for salvation. All true believers will feel on some level a level of affection, a level of gratitude uh, for God that might manifest itself in different ways outwardly for others to see when they experience salvation, when they're kind of overcome by the reality of grace and what grace has done in them and what they've seen, what they've been saved from. And that emotional, again, affection, while often accompanying not only salvation but the Christian life, does not indicate salvation in itself. And, and here's this mourning over, and if you, again, grew up in the church and have been a believer for a long time, I think you would mourn along with me. I've been on many mission trips, a part of different youth groups and young adult groups and small groups, been part of churches, this church, with people who I've heard be overwhelmed when they're talking about what God means to them, what he has done in their lives, rightly saying things about salvation and sin and repentance, committing their lives, real tears, real passion and emotion. And then six months later, one year later, five years later, nothing. They've walked away. They've denied Christ. And those memories, like, I was in the room. Those were real tears. That wasn't fake and made up. What happened? It's scary. It's scary when I think about my own life. One thing I hear often is that I am passionate when I preach. And it's often said, I think, as an affirmation, a compliment. I, in, in some ways, I, I hope that I am passionate when I preach. But, but, but here's the thing. Passion, even in correct preaching, does not mean anything by itself. Because you know what? I could be passionate about the sermon and not the Christ I proclaim in the sermon. You know what I mean? I could be passionate about the way I structured it. Oh, this is good. Three points, they all start with the same letter. I can be passionate about the way I feel like I can move people through my words. I can be passionate about the praise I might get from preaching. The success even I can get from it. The growing church, a Christian leader can love the influence, the lifestyle, in our day especially, the fame, the notoriety, notoriety, can you say the word? Maybe the money that could come from it. I could be passionate about the gift of preaching. That might lead me to treasure all those things above the Christ that I preach. When I began in ministry, and people would say, hey man, how could I pray for you? 
my top prayer requests, and I am haunted by this, is I ask people to pray that I would never begin to love preaching the gospel more than I love the gospel itself. Fervency for God can be a form of self-deception. Keep going. Number three. Sorry, I said there's four ways. There's three ways. I bundled this one. Number three, works done in the name of God. Works done in the name of God. Did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? This progression of self-deception keeps getting bigger and larger. There's correct claims about Jesus as Lord. It's not sufficient. There's even claiming Christ with real emotion and fervency. Not, not sufficient. And remarkably, even doing mighty works in his name is not sufficient for salvation. Mighty works that apparently even go beyond driving out demons. So he talks about these three things, the, the, the specifically the works of prophesying, casting out demons, and even mighty, mighty, many mighty works. It shows that works in and of themselves, while again, evidence of God's salvation through faith, we talk about that all the time, good works is evidence, is a result of saving faith, and yet is not the grounds for salvation, because right here, Jesus says, many works mighty works, and you can be completely lost. It's not only true because Jesus says it, but all over the Bible, the scriptures show it. To prophesy is to deliver a true spiritual message, right? It's possible to do so and not be saved. There's Old Testament men like Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. There's King Saul, if you remember him, in the book of 1 Samuel. Men who had moments of the spirit of prophecy that came upon them, and they spoke truth, God's truth, but who they themselves were far from God. And then you get to the New Testament, and we see the Apostle Paul on several occasions saying, listen, it's possible to speak and proclaim truth while not being in the truth. In Philippians chapter 1, he addresses those who preach Christ, because the church had a question for Paul about these kind of guys who were preaching Christ, but they seemed like they had all the wrong motivations. And Paul says, that's going to happen. They're going to preach the truth of Christ, but they're doing it out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition. That there are those who prophesy in Christ's name, but not for the glory of God. They do it for the glory of themselves. Paul's like, I know, it stinks. It's true. And then he speaks of himself even. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, watch, lest after preaching to others, I myself, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. You know 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably heard it at 80% of the weddings you've ever attended. But it's primarily talking about love within the body of Christ, although it's fine to read it at weddings. I'm not knocking it. He says in verses 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Prophesying in the name of Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. Incredibly, neither is casting out demons. Someone can cast out a demon 
and not be in the kingdom of heaven. Full disclosure, I've never casted a demon out of anybody. Maybe you have, or maybe you've seen, witnessed it happening. Probably most of you haven't. But if you are the one who did it, let me know. I mean, I just, I want your number, all right? That's kind of an aside, right, just in case, okay? But to see this, to see the fact that this is actually true, we need to look no further than Jesus' closest 12 disciples. Judas, the disciple who would betray Jesus, would be a living illustration of this teaching. Again, Judas is listening to the Sermon on the Mount. He is here. He's in this group. And then go on to be an example of this passage. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples to do mighty works and to bear witness to Christ. And they came back. All the disciples came back and wrote and said this in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. Judas, again, the man who would betray Jesus, be the human means through which Jesus would go to the cross, drove out demons in the name of Christ. It's not grounds for salvation. And then the catch-all, many mighty works. Many even more we can't list. All together leading to this sobering reality. Hear me. One of the enemy's greatest weapons in keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven is by way of making them think they're already in. And the fate awaiting those who are self-deceived is spoken in verse 23. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The most important phrase in that verse and in this passage is the one in the middle of verse 23. I never knew you. Those are the two dangers, the danger of non-belief, the danger of self-deception, and now the exhortation, the eternal importance, number three, of being truly known by God. Jesus is teaching at this point in the sermon as he winds down the way through the narrow gate. And by saying this near the end of his sermon, he's encouraging his disciples to do some self-examination of their own souls. So what's it mean to be truly known by God? I, I want to say a word on self-examination and then what it means to be truly known. And then finally, can you have any assurance that you're known? Okay, so self-examination. I think there's a lot of confusion as to how Christians should view that topic of self-examination, examining your own soul, um, not only when you uh, become a Christian, but in the pursuit of leading a Christ-centered life. How often, what should it look like to examine your own soul? I wrote a blog on this a couple months ago that you could go find on the website that might flesh it out even more than what I can do now. But my general point was that a spiritual checkup is necessary for believers. Similar to how a physical checkup is important, it's wise for people, and that, you sh and, and, and that you should not schedule a physical every single week. Don't go every Monday to the doctor to do a checkup. Don't obsess over your body and say, am I healthy, am I healthy, I need to get checked up every single week. But also, don't do what I often do and go years without a physical checkup. And in some Christian circles, you'll hear 
We're not supposed to examine ourselves. We're not supposed to really look at ourselves. Just focus on Christ. Focus on Christ for the assurance of salvation. We're saved by him, so look to him. Don't look at yourself. And to that I would say, I, I think I understand what you're getting at. And, and, and yes, our eyes are on Christ, but with one qualifier. We're not just to focus on Christ, but Christ in us. Christ in us, that his work is evident in us, and we are in him. Which is why Paul writes explicitly in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now, can that get obsessive? Can we get caught constantly staring at ourselves and kind of this morbid introspection instead of healthily examining ourselves? Can we possibly get into these ruts where we're so anxious and, and, and just wrecked with every doubt we have or every stray thought we have or every sin we commit? Yeah, I think that's possible. But we can also neglect to examine ourselves altogether. And a lack of examination breeds self-deception. A lack of examination breeds self-deception. So with that said, I commend to you this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. He died at age 29. But he wrote this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. So the questions then that ought to drive our self-examination are these. Do I know God and am I known by God? And the vital distinction that is rooted in Scripture and in our vision statement here at Grace Church is how you define that word know. When Jesus says to those who are deceived, depart from me, I never knew you, he doesn't use the word know in the sense that he did not know about them. Of course he knows about them. God knows all whom he has created. Nothing is out of his sight and out of his mind. He's sovereign over all things at all moments. But again, in the Old Testament prophetic book of Amos, we see this kind of language again. God tells the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So when the Bible speaks about God knowing his people... He means a particular and specific relationship to them. Not merely knowing of, not merely knowing about, but an intimate relational knowing. And so one of the major reason, reasons why we focus on that kind of language of knowing Christ and making him known at Grace Church is because it focuses on our aim, not just on conveying information so that people will know about Jesus, but that we might use this journey and, and, and see this church as a place where we can do the journey of knowing Christ in particular, in that particular relational kind of knowing. Going back to Romans 10, it's, it's yes, confession with our mouths, but it's also a belief in our heart that Jesus died to make us clean, that Jesus died to take our place, that Jesus died to unite us with him as adopted sons and daughters in God's family, and that raises our affections for God and moves, up, moves us to live a Christ-centered life for his glory, the kind of life that Jesus has been describing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what it means to know God. But how can we know, how can we have any assurance that we are known by him? This is where we'll close. The answer from the text brings us back to the latter half of verse 21. Let me read all of 21 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But 
the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Once again, Jesus is not advocating here for salvation by works. Do the best you can. We'll figure it all out at the end. Because we saw in verses 22 and 23, right after, that even those who did the mighty works were not saved. We're not in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here is referring to a heart-level obedience. Hang with me here for a few more minutes. Jesus is referring to a heart-level obedience that goes beneath the surface level of the Pharisees he's been contrasting with the whole Sermon on the Mount. A heart-level obedience that is the evidence of a transformed life by faith in him. You cannot do the will of the Father without the heart of the Son. You cannot do the will of the Father without the heart of the Son by the power of the Spirit. And you can only receive the heart of Christ by repenting of sin and believing in him. This is the paradox of the gospel. That the way to true obedience is by acknowledging that you cannot achieve obedience without him. Church, Jesus does not want your works or just your words or just your fervent passion. He wants you. All of you. Full surrender, full submission, again, as we sang in Blessed Assurance, out of which the words will flow, the fervency will rise, and the actions will be seen. So the examination, examination that Jesus wants you to do is not, what, what, what are just the words you say to others? It's not just what the actions others see. The examination Jesus wants you to do is the heart-level examination of the character of one who's in the kingdom of heaven, which brings us back all the way to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how it started? It's called the Beatitudes. It describes the kind of character of believers. So the questions to ask yourself are not just, are the words I say good, are the actions I do good, do other people notice them? But the right questions are, Am I poor in spirit? Do I mourn the sin in my life and the brokenness in this world? Am I meek? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice? Am I merciful and pure in heart? Am I compassionate toward those who are hurting and in physical need and do what I can to address it? Am I a peacemaker? Will I stand up for truth, the truth for God and the truth for others, no matter what it costs? These are the questions that will lead to the assurance that your hope is found in Christ alone. And when this is our heart's desire, when we can dig beneath the surface, that's where we find repentance is a good word. It's a word of freedom. It's a turning away from the things of this world and a turning away from ourselves, not only as our own gods, but also as people who can fully surrender it to him. For when we do this, you don't just get assurance that you'll spend eternal life with God, but you get the fuel and the motivation to live out your purpose in this world with faithfulness today. To bear witness to Christ in the ways that we speak, 
to act in a way that serves to love God and others, to glorify his name in all things. Do you know Jesus? Are you known by him? Believe me, it is far more exhausting to pretend you know him than it is to actually know him. And so as we conclude in our sermon this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to have just a minute of silence now. To ask yourself, what's the spirit doing in your heart right now? Perhaps you've never placed your faith in Christ and and, and by God's grace, or you're just here and this is the word on, this, on the day that you happen to be watching online or here in person. And there's an invitation to know Jesus. There's an acknowledgement that you must be tired. Come, all who are weary, and he will provide you rest. Admit you can't do it on your own and believe in him. Perhaps you're wondering if you have been deceived for the last year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, relying on your knowledge about God and your actions that impress others about your knowledge about God. Maybe you've never fully rested in him. This is the opportunity, again, to fully surrender. So as strange as it might feel, I just want to give us a minute of silence. Just consider these things in your own heart, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your sovereignty, your plan for salvation, your plan for our lives is not a jagged rock we slam our head against, but it's the soft pillow we can rest our heads upon. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us all of who you are, not a cold God who's removed with a set of rules that we have to follow or else, but a God who says, come, don't be deceived. Don't do it on your own, Lord, but come. And so, Lord, I pray for everybody here this morning. I pray for everybody listening, Lord, that we would heed the Spirit this morning and whatever the Spirit is speaking to us, that we would not too easily distract ourselves from the word that you provided to us. And Lord, it is for our joy. It is for the good of the world around us that we step into this. And above all, it's for your glory. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together, respond in song before we take the Lord's Supper.